Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. I'm Brandon Batson. I'm the producer of this podcast and the Communications and Connections Director here at Christ Church in New York City. I'm here with your host, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, the Senior Minister here at Christ Church. Hey, Brandon. Good to be here. Each week, our podcast will begin with Steve giving a short talk on whatever subject we might be covering that week, followed by a discussion between the two of us and guests of the podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of unconditional welcome, what it means for the church, and what it means to us as Christians seeking a more authentic faith. So today we're here, we're going to be talking about the idea of unconditional welcome. Uh, It's one of the things that drew me to Christ Church where we work together. So why don't we start maybe by just talking about how unconditional welcome works here in our context at Christ Church? Well, maybe the place to begin is to tell you about my experience at Christ Church when I first got here and how we grew into our practice of unconditional welcome. Great. So when I first came to Christ Church, there weren't many people here. It was near internal collapse. Had this gorgeous geode of a building, but uh, no one was in it. Mm. <laughs> so, And it was only open for like three hours on a Sunday morning. But once we started uh, reimagining what Christ Church could be like, um, we started to attract a rather diverse group of people. And right from the beginning, when I say diverse, I mean in every imaginable way we could think of it, internationally, uh, ethnically, racially here, uh, men and women, younger and older, uh, straight and gay, uh, I mean, just in every conceivable way. And the way I perceived that was that this is who God was bringing to us. And who we were be gonna, who we were gonna become a part of, you know. But together, we were going to create the next version of Christ Church here in the city. So it became kind of a natural sequence of events that led us to into a uh, developing our mission statement, and then our core values. And after a lengthy process of trying to write a mission statement. I don't know if you've ever participated in that, Brandon, but man, oh man. Disaster. Yeah, exactly. It can be a really, uh, really funny process because people bring in their missions and they're like three pages long. Well, it's a cult of personality. Well, Everybody brings their own little piece. of course. Anyway, so when we boiled it all down and we realized we had our mission already embedded within the mosaics above the altar, which was uh, Jesus' great command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we awoke to the idea that we awakened to the idea that uh, our mission was that we will seek to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. It was a no-brainer when we finally got to it. And um, that was consistent with the things that our founder of Methodism, John Wesley, valued. And it's certainly consistent with all of Christendom, quite frankly. Honestly, it it seems funny to me that more churches don't just strip it down to that as the point of their being. It's a really interesting thing to me. Well, once we had our mission, we then uh, moved along into core values. 
And our core value conversation was very interesting, and it partly grew out of, well, who had we already become? Well, we had already become this astonishingly diverse group of people. Well, how did that happen? Well, it happened because we extended our arms as wide, we opened our arms as wide as we could, and we just welcomed who came into the space. And that was this wondrous array of people. And so our core four values uh, evolved in this manner. Worship is the core of our life. So after worship, we decided that we will live and practice dynamic hospitality. And by that, we didn't mean a, a uh, set of politeness principles, like we were going to have the right table settings and so on in terms of hospitality. Right. But we really meant that from the standpoint of believing that that's the core of the gospel of Jesus, that uh, the evangel of the gospel is that God loves all persons. Y'all come. That's the kind of hospitality we intended. And that's the kind of hospitality that we committed ourselves to in that core value. And then the third core value was we welcome and celebrate diversity. It's a natural outgrowth of having hospitality as one of your core values. If hospitality is your core value, you're inevitably going to have an astonishing diversity. What a wonderful thing that was. And for me, it always seemed really important to be doing ministry in Christ Church that our congregation would reflect to some degree the wondrous diversity that's within the city of New York. I mean, what a great place, people of all walks of life. And we wanted to have our little mm, corner of that universe right up front and accounted for in our space. Yeah, in a spiritual community. In a spiritual community, of course. Especially in a spiritual community. Because we know that what often happens is that spiritual communities devolve into tribalistic communities that are bounded by strict doctrines and um, rules and regulations about who can belong to us. Right. And thus we create an us and them. I think Jesus spent out his life breaking down all those walls and barriers. Um, So therefore, we wanted to be really committed to the um, to the evangel of everyone come. Right. And I think what's so interesting about that, and it even plays itself out on a weekly basis, like this particular week I received an email from somebody who's looking at our church and they were asking for where is our statement of faith or where is our like core list of beliefs? And I was like, it's interesting because most of the churches, for, especially from the background that I come out of, like the first thing on their website is what we believe, right? And it's not it's not about core values, it's not about the place, it's more, like you said, like the list of things that you must adhere to and believe these exactly in order to be a part of our community, or you will feel like an outsider. Was this person missing those things? Yes, it did. they were basically saying, like, where is this, like, on your website? Or where Does that is mean, this? so this person was saying, so, wh- so I can decide whether I agree or disagree with it? I don't know if that is their, was their aim, but... I do know from working in those environments, most people who are looking at a church like that very much want to know who you are based on those principles first. 
before right. they ever walk through the door. So whether this person just kind of wanted to know, oh, what do Methodists believe? Or if they were like, I want to know if they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, I don't <laughs> right. know. Right. But what it brought to my attention is that that is a desire of people walking into like a religious institution or to know what they believe. And I think what was funny about that is like, it's on our website. It's in our core values. Like that is the essence of this place. It isn't, um, even though we have, you know, core theology that is based in United Methodism and the, you know, your education and all these different things, it's not like adherence to a certain theology is not the basis for uh, participation in this community. That's correct. And sometimes people misunderstand that by framing our life together that way means that we don't believe in anything. (laughs) Right. And of course, (laughs) that isn't true at all. Right. But I also believe this pretty, pretty significantly, that what we believe didactically ought to be truly represented in how we live. And it seems to me that how we live is by extending hospitality to all. And that is a demonstration that we understand that love is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that everyone is meant to be loved and cared for and cared about, regardless of who they are. And that then becomes in and of itself a kind of statement of faith, but not in a uh, traditional sense of the word, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of the first places that I saw this evident in the life of the church and how it played out um, on a weekly basis is how Christ Church approaches communion and and extending that to everyone. If you could maybe speak to that for a second, kind of how sure, that works here. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a personal story about that. Yeah. So before I was ordained, I was finishing seminar, seminary and I wasn't yet ordained. Melissa and I... Um, had an opportunity to join a Christian community called Covenant House. It was founded by a Franciscan priest, Bruce Ritter, and it was a uh, it was essentially a program for runaway and homeless youth who wound up in Times Square. Now, this was back in the 1970s, and let me tell you, Times Square was the opposite of what pe- people think of it as today. I mean, it was a hot house of a human rot. It's basically. Disney World now. Yeah, you know, now it's Disney World. But back then it was like a homing beacon for dislocated uh, kids and they got chewed up and spit out. It was an enormous sex industry there. Anyway, so this this program got founded to, to uh, respond to this need. And along with it, Bruce had uh, founded a Christian community based on Franciscan pr- principles. Now, Bruce happened to be a rather theologically conservative Catholic. And as a result, we, though we were the only non-Catholics currently in the community, were expected to pay attention to the cycle of prayer throughout the day, and that included a Eucharist every evening. Hmm. And we would would be expected to be there, but Bruce made it very clear that um, we could not actually receive the elements Mm-hmm. And uh, by the same token, we happened to be the only musicians in the community, so we gladly provided the music for this community. <laughs> and they're standing around the communion table singing 
and then being excluded from that meal was a profoundly life-changing experience for me and for Melissa, who frequently had tears streaming down her eye face every time that went by because we were, you know, we were really in the front lines in those days with this kind of a program in the middle of Times Square. I mean, we, this was, uh, you know, uh, foxhole uh, work. Right. And, um, and here we were being excluded from the most including aspect of the Christian sacraments that we could name. That was a profoundly uh, important experience for me. And it became clear to me, coming out of that, that communion needs to be seen as a, using old classical language, as a converting instrument, not as an exclusion instrument. Mm. And converting is even the wrong word here. It's meant to be an open act of hospitality because, after all, we are doing this in the name of Jesus who gave himself for everyone. No one had to have a prerequisite. No one had to have a ticket. No one had to have a great degree in theology. No one had to (laughs) subscribe to a set of uh, theological principles. No one had to say they believed in the errant word of God or anything. Right. So... That has followed me all the, all the way here and into the present day. Now, I'm not alone in my thinking on this. There's a many, many Methodists who celebrate what we call the open table. Yeah. So that's where that comes from. And I am a, I just, you, I am just a firm believer in this. Well, and I, I thought in, in my ignorance, truly, like when I stepped into this, uh, you know, I, for lack of a better word, like a more progressive um, spiritual community, I thought, oh, well, most most people who are more progressive in their theology or more open and welcoming in their theology, they must all welcome everybody to the table, you know? That, that must be a thing across the board. But then I was online not too long ago, and I saw a post, and I actually pulled it up because I thought it was so uh, telling. It said, do not deny anyone communion ever. Communion is not a reward. It is not a privilege for the righteous. It's an invitation to step towards God's table where everyone has enough and everyone has a place. Yeah. And you would not imagine, like, from a lot of my progressive friends online were like, no, they, it is reserved for, you know, members of the church, you know, blah, 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 blah. And this guy just got land blasted. I was like, oh, this is a great you know, <laughs> quote, and I, I was surprised by that that isn't, that's not practiced in every church. That's not practiced no. in, in every church that's affirming. Uh, it's not practiced in every church that happens to be more theologically liberal. It's just... No, there are liturgical churches who believe that um, communion comes as kind of a benefit of confirmation. Right. Once you confirm your faith, once you have a sense of, well, what's going on here? Well, you know, the reason that doesn't, I don't find that compelling is because, you know, if you're offering dinner at home and you invite a guest there, you don't have to get, you don't have to understand what's going on in the family in order to, you know, have it, share the roast beef. You, you, know, you, you just, you, what's going on is we're having a meal, you all come. Right. Now, and then as we immerse ourselves in the experience, we actually begin to discover what is going really going on here and that 
that gets me to a point that I wanted to discuss with you is that I, what I've learned from being a part of a liturgical church now for six months, uh, in the first time in my life, is that there is true value in participation in worship. Right. Yes. Like it really is liturgy. It's the work of the people. Right. Right. That's exactly and, right. And so, being a part of a community that welcomes everyone to the table, that welcomes everybody into that liturgy, is they are now a part of the preaching of the gospel during the service. Right. That's right. And so, like you said, for lack of a better word, a, con- a conversion tool or a converting tool, it's like when people are allowed to participate in the life of the church in every way without limits and walls, people become more like Christ. People see the value in what we do. And I think when I look back on more um evangelical environments that I've been in, there are so many walls on the way to where they want you to get, right? So you would hear a sermon about um, to really be a good Christian or to really be at the center and core of your faith, you need to be serving and you need to be leading a small group and you need to be X, Y, and Z. But if you are gay, you cannot serve. You cannot lead a small group, and you can't do X, Y, and Z. If you are participating in some sort, some other lifestyle thing that they don't approve of, you can't serve, you can't lead a small group, and you can't do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. So it's like to to get to where they're at saying like you have to do these things in order to be a good quote unquote Christian, where you can't do it. Right. You can come every week. You can you can you can listen to the sermon, you can sing the songs, but ultimately there is a wall in the way of you getting there. Yeah. No, I hear that. It seems to me that we, we have to be, to use your language, we have to be in the business of breaking down walls. What right. gets in the way of our relationship with God? What prevents us from getting there? Um, now, you know, this is a paradoxical conversation because, again, I want to reiterate that it is not as though I don't think beliefs are unimportant no, or that certain um, standards and doctrines aren't useful and, and necessary for institutional life and structure and for the contain- providing a container for the tradition to be transmitted into future generations. All of that is required, necessary. But when you get down to the brass tacks, of, of uh, expressing yourself with the gospel. It is all about love. How well are we loving? And I mean that in the least sentimental way possible, because after all, the greatest example of love that Jesus gives us is by dying a horrible death. Very unsentimental, even though Christians tend to make it sentimental, hmm. which is kind of problematic as well. The fact is that loving is very hard work. And to say, you know, I'm, I'm constantly reminded that to <clears throat> say I subscribe to the uh, idea that God is love and Jesus tells me to love, but I live my life like a, you know, a bastard, son of a gun. Um, I, I can t- talk till I'm blue in the face, but unless my life reflects the words that I'm speaking, I am a complete and utter hypocrite. 
And I would rather have it be the other way around. You know, there's a very famous old blessing that's been supposedly attributed to St. Patrick, and I doubt that that's the case. (laughs) Of course. But, you know, go forth and preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Right. And the idea being that the content and quality of our life and our love will tell infinitely more than than, uh, the words we are using. Or there's another saying I know that C.S. Lewis quoted, which was, what you do screams so loud I can't hear what you say. Right. Um, so what we're trying to do is to lead forward with how we live love as opposed to lead forward with what we say is the absolute truth. Right. And I think I, I think there's that tension that you're talking about there, right? Like... Um, we're talking about unconditional welcome. We're saying like there are no walls for you to be a part of us. There are no walls for you to participate in the ways in which you want to. Like you said, we are a tradition. We are a denomination. We have, you know, standards and practices and tradition that's there. And I think the, when I was on the outside looking in, even myself, I, I think I used to think like, oh yeah, that there's no, right and wrong there's no you know theological standard of any kind and i i i just thought like oh because they're like open mind open hearts is like what what i always knew of methodism before it's like well that just means you can do whatever you want and there's no standard and nobody believes anything which is just not true well you can't think like that if if love is your goal right you know (laughs) because love is hard work and it requires a hell of a lot more of us than just subscribing to some set of words. Right. You know, if I'm going to love well, it means that, no, not everything goes. Quite the contrary. Mm. It means that I'm going to discipline and structure my life in such a way that I'm going to be caring and careful about my so-called neighbors in the world. Well, and lived experience is actually the thing that is informing the right and wrong of it and it also informed by scripture and things but i think that is the added piece that i never had was allowing experience to some way inform how i was treating other people and how i was you know interacting with others in the world yeah of course yeah our lived experience is well, let me put it this way. Another way of thinking about it, another metaphor that I use is you can generally, using a nautical metaphor, you can generally tell what <clears throat> a person values by the wake they leave as they course through their life. And is the wake of their you know, passing through leading to good outcomes or bad outcomes, generative outcomes or destructive outcomes, healthy outcomes or unhealthy outcomes, upbuilding outcomes or crushing outcomes, you know, all of that. You can generally see it. In fact, I've encouraged people from time to time, if they're brave, to think about what is the wake that they are leaving in the course of their lives. Mm. And if they're really brave, they will ask people they know this question, what do they see in the wake? that they're, they've got going on in their life. Right. 
I think that that requires inner reflection. <laughs> yes, it, it you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that when you have, <clears throat> when you've been taught your whole life that you just have to adhere to these principles and that's all you have to do, even though that still is almost, it, it is impossible. It seems easier than having to look deeply into your actions, look deeply into the way the things and that you believe and say and act out affect those around you. I think that's way harder. Oh, it, it requires is. a lot more grace and a lot more um, saying I'm sorry and yep. listening, which the other does not require, in right. my opinion. You know, our last of the four core values is we strive for excellence in all that we do. And it's very important to make the distinction between excellence and perfectionism. Hmm. Because we're not after per- perfectionism. We're after uh, the idea that if something is worth doing, it's worth doing well. Um, I think a lot of churches, even in their um, doctrinal standards, can get caught up in a kind of perfectionism of belief that that um, kind of wrecks the central focus of what it means to be living in a Christ-like fashion in the world. Um, I think that's close to what you were saying. Right, yeah, exactly. When we're talking about unconditional welcome and what that means, I think the thing that I see in some church environments is how you view people at their base level very much affects how you see welcome and how you welcome people into an environment, whether it's spiritual or otherwise. And one thing that I was looking at earlier today is um, I would just typed into Google search, like unconditional welcome. This is like just like terminology that we were throwing around yesterday. I was like, well, does anybody writing anything about this or saying anything about this? And a popular website for like pastors in like uh, more conservative environments, one that a lot of people read, I won't say the name, but it said uh, they had the word unconditional welcome on their website. And it said, God receives you just as you are, sinful, suffering, confused. Unconditional is shorthand for God's invitation to rough, dirty, broken people. I think this may be the center of why some church environments don't extend the kind of welcome that we're talking about here. You know what I mean? Like. Because, I mean, in that statement, it's like, that's what unconditional welcome is. You're filthy, you're awful, you're broken, um, and you're in need of our help and forgiveness. You know what I mean? And I think when you start from that place, it's not that I don't acknowledge those things within myself and and the ways in which I fall short of the glory of God, to use the Bible reference. But when you start from that point, I think that you view people as untrustworthy and you you have a distrust of people in general and um, you want to, man- I feel it leads to manipulation in a way because at the base you just feel like everyone. Well, and the tendency is, is then to tell people how it is that they're broken and messed up. Right. The focus is on that. Right. Well, you know, in theology, there's a... Uh, an emerging uh, correction to this, because what you've just described comes out of the theological framework of what what's called original sin. You know, the sin of Adam and Eve has 
poisoned all of us down through the ages. Right. Right. And that becomes the originating uh, location of how to track our own human emergence. But the problem is there's a there's an emerging counter to this, which is before humans sinned, they were created in the image of God. Hmm. And God called it very good. And this is called original blessing. And if you'll note, original blessing precedes original sin. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, we could spend another podcast on this very topic. Right. But to your point, what this leads me to say is, I would prefer to lead with, you are a beautiful creation of God, created in God's own image. What a spectacular thing and piece of creation you are. Welcome. Come. Come join, come join into the family of God. I'd much rather lead with that. And I think people would much prefer to hear that. Although, and I'm not leading with it because people prefer it per se but i do think it's the truest thing that can be said well until you understand that and embody that how would you ever want more i mean do you know what i mean that that's the way i see it is unless i truly believe that god loves me that he cares for me that he has what is in my best interest right um then why would I ever want to know more about the character of God? Why would I want to know more about the people of God and participate in that? Um, why would I want to do the inner work of looking inside and seeing what way, in what ways do the thing, uh, do my biases and the things about me that I don't like, how do they affect people around me in negative ways, and how can I change that, and how can I address that quote-unquote sin issue or whatever? You're never going to want that unless you first understand, I am loved beyond measure. Exactly, exactly. And leading with the other makes us constantly uh, wondering, how can I possibly find God's favor? How can I measure up? How can I possibly do whatever God requires if I'm leading with, I'm a sinful mess? Mm-hmm. Um, but leading with, I am a beloved child of God, written into my DNA, leading with that allows me to acknowledge my brokenness in a way that's restorative and not punitive. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yes, very much so. Because it's not like I'm saying everything that I am or everything that I do is perfect, far from it. But at the bottom of everything, I know that I'm a beloved child of God, and that gives me the grace and the power and the courage to assess all of the components of my life that don't measure up to what that image is. Right. And I think the one thing that's that I've seen like in this community that I feel really does practice unconditional welcome is for the first time in my life, I'm sitting in a truly diverse congregation yeah um all of these things that we've talked about as problems all that it ever did was get a very 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 uh homogenous group of people together yeah you know yep typically the same in socioeconomic standings typically the same race and uh dominated by a single gender and yeah you know because i 
I think that that's what happens when you have all of these standards that you have to meet before you can join a, a community. But here I look out across our congregation, even though we're, we are located on Park Avenue, which you would imagine that would create a singular type of person. Right. It's an extremely diverse group of people. Right. That's actually one of the things that people will comment on to me most often over the years, that who's here is not who they expected to be here. Right, exactly. <laughs> so because we're not a neighborhood church, and as such, there isn't a true neighborhood around Park Avenue and 60th Street in any case. The address sounds flashy, and in a way it is, but the people who come to church here actually come from all of the boroughs in Westchester County and New Jersey. We have a lot of people in New Jersey, and we know how different they are. <laughs> well, and, and uh, you know, we're going to talk about this more in another podcast, but I had a friend of mine come for uh, most recently on a Sunday, and the number one thing that they said was, I don't think I've ever been in church with a gay person. And I said, I guarantee you, you have. <laughs> yes, of They course. just weren't able to be themselves of at church. Of course, of course. And, <laughs> and I think that uh, Christ Church's position on you know being affirming, and especially in the, the, the current climate with the UMC and the possible schism and all of that, right. I think that it now more than ever in the life of our church, it's so important that we are welcoming and that we're openly welcoming and that that's on everything we hand out and on our website and everything yeah. we do because it communicates so much. Yeah, we want to be clear. It's not as though that is our singular issue, but on the other hand, we want to be very clear that it th about who we are and who's who is received here. Right. So it's a um you know, the fact is, there are so many ways that we slice and dice people up into who belongs and who doesn't, and so much of this is unconscious, and most of us, I mean, most of us have to do uh, really uh, deep surgery on ourselves in order to find ourselves really practicing the value of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that, in other words, it cut, it's certainly in the... Um, gay straight that world or all gender identity world but also race and ethnicity and socioeconomic all of us have oh gosh these these things that haunt us and keep us less than we might be well i think this was a great conversation and i've uh, appreciated our time together I today agreed. Uh, me too i always think these conversations are excellent and i look forward to the next one